Let's get into the message here. Very excited about the the Word of God this morning. We're going to be looking at uh, John chapter 4, verses 27 to 42. Now, if you remember last week, we uh, were looking at the earlier part of chapter 4, which was about Jesus taking his disciples into Samaria to meet this woman, a Samaritan woman who was drawing water at the well at 12 o'clock, around noon, the middle of the day, and the conversation that Jesus had with her while his disciples went into town, into the Samaritan town, a Samaritan town, to get food. And, uh, you know, if you remember that exchange about water, living water, where are you going to get this water? I have living water to give you, if you remember that. Um, the woman thought that Jesus was talking about physical water. Jesus was talking about living water, about salvation, and how if she believed in him, if she believed in God, that that would um, quench the thirst that she has within her in a permanent way. So um, if you remember that, if you were not here last week, you could check out the the earlier part of chapter 4. But I'm going to read from 27 and on. Uh, Last week we read up to verse 30, so we're going to overlap slightly here just to help us get the context a little more and jog our memory. So we're going to take a look here from verse 27 down to uh, 42. It says, just then his disciples came back. So Jesus' disciples came back from town with sandwiches and whatever it is that they got. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months and then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Pray with me for a moment. Father, we come before you, before your word, and we pray, God, that you would speak to our hearts this day, that your truth would, um, would just mold our hearts would help us to become like you, would help us to think your thoughts after you. We pray for the mighty power of the Holy Spirit to do this in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Excuse me while I get one more sip of water. Um, I want to start in reverse here for a moment. With, with With these words right here, we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. I just want to, I just got to pause here for a moment and just emphasize how amazing it is 
that this crowd of Samaritans were saying, this, we know this is the savior of the world. Remember, these are, to the Jews, these are half-breed sellouts. People of Israel who intermarried with foreign nations back in the Old Testament times and, and, and they, they distorted their religion and they only held to the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament. They didn't believe in the prophets and the chronicles and the histories and the, and the poetry and the Psalms and all of that. They, they looked at them as sellouts. This crowd of Samaritans were saying, we believe that this man, Jesus, he is the savior of the world. This is a crazy, crazy statement. Because it, when we think about it, it's so different from the Jewish perspective at this time. You see, for them, they understood that the Messiah was to be a savior. But for them, their mentality was, we want Jesus to be the, we want the Messiah to be the savior, but of the Jews, of the Israelites, not of the world. We want him to come and save us from Rome that is oppressing us. In fact, we want him to come and save us from all the nations. And one day, all the nations will come and bow down to us. Once God restores our place in this world and gives us power, led by his Messiah. And certainly, the Samaritans were lumped in together with these Gentiles, with these non-Jews in their mind, in their perspective. I mean, this is why, as we saw from last week here, if you remember this diagram, Jesus and his disciples went over here into Sychar and then continued on to Galilee through Samaria, Samaritan country. Some Jews who despised the Samaritans so much would actually cross the Jordan River, go up along its bank and cross back over and then go on to Galilee. Not all, but, but some did this because they wanted to avoid Samaria so much they didn't want to be with these people. That's how they viewed them. And the Israelites, it feels like they completely forgot what God said through Isaiah when he prophesied, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. What Isaiah was prophesying was saying, it's too little for the Messiah just to come and save Israel. This is meant for all the nations, for the entire world. But it feels like the Jews, the Israelites, forgot that. They forgot, as Isaiah also said in chapter 56, that God said, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. All peoples. All were invited to come to my house. It's a house of prayer for all nations. It feels like the people of Israel forgot this, they became like a nation of Jonah's who when God said, go to Nineveh, preach repentance, Jonah was like, no. <laughs> and he ran the other way because he didn't want God to go and save these Assyrian people who, who, who oppressed Israel. He, he ran away. And then when he went and he preached, he preached reluctantly. And then he sat on a hill and he waited with his hands, arms folded. God is going to save them because he's a generous, loving God. Oh, I know it. I know God's going to save them. Remember that, Jonah? That was the attitude of Jonah and many of the people of Israel. That's why Jesus' visit to Samaria, to the Samaritan woman, is so important. It is such a statement that he is making to all of us, to all of the world about who he's the savior of, who he came for. Remember last week, I, I pointed out uh, these fictional 
uh, actor depicted pictures of, we don't have photographs of Nicodemus, I guarantee you that, of Nicodemus from chapter 3, who was a powerful Jewish man, a ruler in the Sanhedrin, a, a, a Pharisee, who was a religious leader of the people of Israel. Jesus went to him, he came to Jesus, and Jesus told him about how to be born again, but Jesus also went to this Samaritan woman uh, of these people that the Israelites rejected, that they walked around their territory. This woman who came out to get water at noon in the heat of the day because for whatever reason there was shame in her life and she felt like she could not be with other townspeople. And it was even weird. Men didn't talk with women in public back then, but Jesus came and, and he said this gospel is for everybody, including for her, for the most unexpected people. The contrast could, could not be greater between these two. And, and this chapter is full of contrast. If you think about when Jesus went around the towns of Israel, he did so many miracles, but he was rejected again and again and again. This is why in Matthew 11, it says he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they didn't repent. What did Jesus say? Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, Gentile country, okay, non-Israelite country, if the mighty works that I did in you had been done there, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. He even says Sodom and Gomorrah. Sodom and Gomorrah would have repented if they saw the mighty works that I did. Instead, you reject me. You say, don't heal on the Sabbath. Like, what? But here, with this Samaritan woman, he did a miracle, a little display of omniscience. Yes, the man you're with now is not your husband. You've had five husbands. The man you're with now is not your husband. <gasps> it's, 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 you know, that's, that's omniscience. That's some power there. But compared to what he did in Israel, healing lepers, extending withered arms, raising the dead, yet they rejected him. Here in Samaria, a little display of omniscience. <gasps> You're the Messiah. The crowds come. The reaction is so different. The irony here of the Samaritan crowd saying to Jesus, you are the savior of the world. But later on in John, a few chapters later, the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the whole world has gone after him. The whole world, everybody's going to Jesus, and we hate it. We hate it. The Samaritan crowds are saying, he is the savior of this world. This Jew, enemies of the Samaritans, this, for them to say that this Jew is the savior of the world, what? How could they say that? But his own people rejected him. The contrast is so stark. Jesus is, is, this trip through Samaria is a huge statement. I am not just the Messiah of the Jews. I am the Messiah of the whole world, of all who would come and believe in me. Now, I, I think this is really important because we need to understand this heart of Jesus because when we look at what happened to Israel, what do we see? What do we see when we see this contrast? We see, this is what I see, I see a group, I see these Israelites as a group of people who really liked each other, liked to hang out together, wanted a Messiah who would come and save them and make their lives better, but they didn't really want to go out of their way to tell other people, to tell this world, to tell the nations around them about this Savior. And when I hear that, friends, as a pastor of a church, 
in 2023, I feel somewhat uncomfortable. And I wonder if Jesus' message might also apply for us here. How often is it, brothers and sisters, isn't it so possible that the church, that we end up looking like a group of people who just like hanging out together with each other? We want Jesus to come and make our lives better, but we'd really prefer not to go out of our way to go tell others about the Messiah, the Savior of the world. We prefer not to leave our comfort. We prefer not to go to our coworkers or neighbors or the homeless encampments or wherever. We're comfortable here. I can't help but feel like uncomfortable. Jesus, is what you're saying there applicable to us as well? Friends, I, you know, I think about our church and just, I mean, hey, praise God for the three people whom we've baptized in our church, the three who have, according to my count, I could be wrong, who have come to know the Lord through our church. Praise God. That's wonderful. We're celebrating our six-year anniversary next week, and that, that's an average of half a person a year. <laughs> that's a half a person a year. And I'm not saying that it doesn't mean that no one else has come to know the Lord through you, through any of us sharing the gospel. If they have, I certainly hope they've gotten baptized somewhere else and gotten plugged into a church. But at least when I look at our church, I can't help but wonder, are, are we excited about this? About declaring Jesus to be the Savior of the world. I think, I think this is an area we have a lot of growing to do in. But I am thankful that there is so much encouragement from this passage today that I hope will encourage us to be these vessels, to be these messengers about this Messiah, to declare him as the savior of the world. There's so much encouragement here. Look, look at this. The disciples come back. They see Jesus talking with the Samaritan woman. They don't question him. They know better than that. They're, you know, they kind of respect their rabbi. They certainly are wondering what's going on though. But what do they do? They say to him, rabbi, eat, eat. Right? Did you, did you eat? Come, come, come. We have food for you to eat. And then what does Jesus say? He says, I have food to eat that you do not know about. And the disciples are like, what? He got like, did somebody give him a sandwich? Where did he get this food? Jesus, you have like one of those high-tech robes with like secret pockets all over the place with your secret snacks inside that you've been, you've been snacking on that we don't know about? Where do you get this food? Now, this is, this is interesting, right? When we look at chapter 4, these disciples, they, they thought Jesus was talking about physical food just as fast, just as fast as the Samaritan woman thought that Jesus was talking about regular water when he was talking about living water. Water, bread. Living water, spiritual food. What is Jesus talking about here when he says, I have food to eat that you don't know about? What he was probably referring to was from Deuteronomy chapter 8, where it says there, and he humbled you. God humbled the Israelites when they're in the wilderness, when they're in the desert. Remember, he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. What, what, is, what is Jesus trying to tell the disciples here? Certainly, of course, we need to eat physical food when we're hungry, 
But what Jesus is telling the disciples is that there is, there is another kind of food. There's another type of food that we need that that is so important, and, and that is to do the will of the Father, to obey God's will, to walk in his will. That is a type of spiritual food that we need, that we need just as much as we need physical food. Without physical food, you die. Without spiritual food, without doing the will of the Father, you die. You spiritually die. And he's saying to the disciples, while you were gone buying physical food, I was here doing the will of the Father. I brought us into Samaria. I knew we were coming here for a purpose. The Samaritan woman was here. I shared the gospel with her. I told her about who I am. She came to believe, and man, I am full. I am full because I was doing the Father's work. I was feasting while you guys were out buying food. D.A. Carson, he said it this way, if in his dealings with the Samaritan woman, Jesus was performing his father's will, there was greater sustenance and satisfaction in that than in any food the disciples could offer him. Jesus was more satisfied, more full from that than any of the sandwiches that they could have brought him from that town of Samaria. Brothers and sisters, When we are hungry, we need to eat. Everybody after this service gets lunch. Whether at home or at a restaurant, when you're hungry, your body is hungry, it tells you something you need to eat. But our souls need to eat too. And that comes from walking in the will of the Father because we are not just body, but we are spirit. That is how God made us. Look at Genesis 2. It says, when God made man, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. Why did God make us? He made us in his image and part and parcel with being made by God is obeying God, is serving God. That's what God did when he put man in the garden to serve him, to obey him, to to worship him. It does not say, and God said, and let there be a couch in the Garden of Eden and let man sit on that couch and sit back and watch Netflix and just relax. Relaxation is good, but he said, put him in the garden that he may work it and keep it. Man was made to obey God, to walk in the will of God. It is is part and parcel with what we were made to do. And when we don't do that, we don't eat. We don't eat. We become spiritually malnourished. Doing the will of God, doing the work of God feeds our soul. Brothers and sisters, what we this is truth. Truth is that when we serve God, when we obey Him, when we do that, it is for you. It's for me. It is for us. You see, the problem is when we when we think you know, I want to go to church, but I don't really want to serve. I don't want to go and bear other people's burdens. I don't want to go listen to other people's problems. I don't, I don't want to give of my hard-earned finances. I don't want to go and do all of these things. When we think with that mentality, when we become consumer Christians, man, consumer Christians, that title is so wrong. It's so contrary. Because when you're a consumer Christian, you're not consuming anything. 
You're actually a starving Christian. That's what Jesus is saying. You think that by doing nothing that you are feeding yourself. No, you are starving. You are slowly dying of malnutrition. Doing the work of God feeds you. Charles Spurgeon, the great Baptist preacher from London, he wrote this. Some of you good people who do nothing except go to the public meetings and Bible readings and prophetic conferences and other forms of spiritual dissipation would be a good deal better Christians if you would look after the poor and needy around you. If you would just tuck up your sleeves for work and go and tell the gospel to dying men, you would find your spiritual health mightily restored. For very much of the sickness of Christians comes through their having nothing to do. All feeding and no working makes men spiritual dyspeptics. Be idle, careless, with nothing to live for, nothing to care for, no sinner to pray for, no backslider to lead to the cross, no trembler to encourage, no little child to tell of a savior, no gray-headed man to enlighten in the things of God, no object, in fact, to live for. And who wonders if you begin to groan and to murmur and to look within until you are ready to die of despair? Let us have a practical Christianity. Brothers and sisters, how do, we, how do we gain the energy to do the will of God by doing the will of God? That's what Jesus is saying here. My food is to do the will of the Father. How do you get the energy to do the will of the Father? By doing the will of the Father. When you do the will of the Father, that rather than taking from you, rejuvenates you, restores you, and fills you up and encourages you to continue going, to continue to run in a race, and to have more energy to serve the Lord. Brothers and sisters, I mean, you know, like, don't get me wrong, you know, burnout is real. Um, maybe some of you have been hurt before in the church. You feel like, man, I don't, I don't want to, I don't want anything to do that. I'm you know, I don't want to serve again. I just want to sit on the sidelines. I, I understand. I, I, I know what that's like. I know what it's like to have a, a spiritual leader disappoint you, break your heart, and make you question everything that you've learned. I, I, I know that. And if that has happened to you, I am so sorry. I am so sorry. I understand how, how painful that can be how disillusioning, how, how, how jaded you can feel after that. But brothers and sisters, friends, the answer is not to take yourself out. You, you end up malnourishing yourself. We find our way back to Christ, back to the grace of the cross, back to walking with God in obedience to his will, in alignment with him, and we find ourselves being fed, being restored, being encouraged once again. When we obey God's will, it rejuvenates us, friends. Here, in, in, in specifically here, in what's happening here in chapter 4, the context is evangelism, right? Jesus is, is sharing the gospel with the Samaritan woman and, and these people, and, and that is life-giving, brothers and sisters. And I can only imagine all the different ways that it is life-giving, 
You know, when, when you begin to share the gospel more, it, it does so many things in your life. You start to pray more. God, help me, Lord. I don't know what to say. God, I can't change hearts. Only you can, God. Lord, I'm, I'm so scared. I'm so nervous. God, help me. It, it rejuvenates your prayer life. It pushes you to pray for wisdom, to lift people up before the throne of God. It challenges you in your sense of identity. Am I going to identify with this Jesus that is less and less popular in America, that is certainly not a popular figure here in the Bay Area, that is much maligned in many different ways, or will I shrink back? Will I shrink back from that and fear man rather than God? It will challenge you in terms of your identity and who you are and where your heart truly lies. It will do so much in feeding you. I believe that God says, proclaim the word of God. Proclaim the word of God and see how much that feeds your soul. Furthermore, further encouragement. Jesus says here to disciples, do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. What is Jesus talking about here? There's a lot of theories about this, what he's talking about. Is this some type of proverb or saying, an idiom? There are yet four months, then comes the harvest. Slow down, young man. Rome wasn't built in a day. Got to plant first. Sow first, then later you harvest. What, what, what was really meant by this? Whatever it was, I think what can be agreed about generally is, is that Jesus is saying is that normal ways of, of, of counting, of waiting, don't apply in this situation. Normally you plant the seed and then you water, you do all that stuff. You got to wait four months until you can harvest. Jesus is saying, no, the harvest is now. That's the point. I think that's the main point we need to take away from this. Whether it's the disciples or people may generally say, now is not yet the time to harvest. Now is not yet the time to share the gospel. Now is not yet the time for the Bay Area, for people to come to know the Lord. Jesus is saying, no, 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 no. It is now. Now is the time. The fields are white for harvest. And that might mean, you know, some people think Jesus was pointing to the fields that were like, had white tips on, the, on the, the grain or whatnot that meant it's time to harvest it. Or he might have been looking at these Samaritans who were coming, streaming out of the town towards them, dressed in their white robes, looking like a harvest. Whatever it was, Jesus is saying, look, the harvest is plentiful. Now is the time of harvest. The fields are ripe for harvest. Not four months from now, not later, but right now, today, this is the day of salvation. And, and, and when, he's, when he says here, one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I think what he is referring to is the fulfillment of Amos chapter 9. Amos, an Old Testament prophet, he said this, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed. And the mountain shall drip sweet wine, and all the hills shall flow with it. What is he talking about here? Amos is prophesying, God is saying that in the end times, the end times are when Jesus came. That's the beginning of the end times. We're living in the end times now, brothers and sisters. That in those days, when Jesus comes, in the end times, it's going to be like this. 
The plowman shall overtake the reaper. What is he talking about there? The plowman is the person who sows seeds. He goes and he plows the ground. He tills it. He prepares the ground. He prepares it. Then he plants the seeds. Then what needs to happen usually? You got to wait four months. Then the reaper goes out and he reaps and he harvests. And then he waits eight months. Right? Then the plowman goes out. It's the cycle. You have to wait. Jesus, basically God is saying there's going to be coming a time when Jesus comes, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper. In other words, the harvest is going to be so plentiful that one guy is like sowing and the other guy's reaping. What? At the same time? Yeah. What in the world? Are you supposed to wait for me? No, man. Everything's growing so fast. (laughs) Everything's growing so fast. As soon as I planted, it's like grown. You got to reap. And where you reap now, I'm going to go sow again. We're doing everything at the same time. The treader of grapes, him who sows the seed. Normally, you got to sow the seed, you got to wait for the grapes, and then they harvest it, and then they go step and tread on the grapes. Man, they're planting, and the grapes are suddenly there. They're throwing it in the wine press, and the, guy, the guy's like treading all year, treading all year. It's, it's, it's merging, it's converging. Jesus is saying, This ain't Old Testament times anymore, friends. When I come, in the age of the church, in the age of the Holy Spirit, which we saw poured out on the day of Pentecost, there will be such a harvest, everything's going to converge. Everything's going to converge. Look, you can, you can pray for somebody for 50 years. Maybe it takes 50 years, and that person comes and says one day on their deathbed, I believe in Jesus. That could happen. And you could also meet somebody on the street that you never met before, and in a moment, they come and they put their faith in Jesus. But it's all around. It's all around. Brothers and sisters, it is harvest time. We got to know this because I think when we live in a place like the Bay Area and we look around at this place that's more and more hostile to Christianity, we think nobody here wants to hear about Jesus. Nobody, nobody wants to know about Jesus here, not in this place, maybe down in, down in the South, maybe somewhere else, not here. No, Jesus says this is a new age, friends, where the Holy Spirit, the wind of the Holy Spirit blows wherever he wishes. The plowman is going to overtake the reaper. That's the age we're living in now with the Holy Spirit. This is why Jesus said in Luke 10, look, it's not the harvest that's the problem. There's plenty of the harvest. The harvest is plentiful. What's few? The laborers. The laborers. Oh, there's harvest everywhere. It's all around, friends. The question is, are there enough people willing to go out and to reap? to go and harvest. That's the problem. Brothers and sisters, his, Jesus says, I'm the problem. Ulysses, it's not that people around you don't want to know the gospel. It's Ulysses. Are you willing to go in faith and believe and tell people and proclaim Jesus because my harvest is out there? Which is it? It's me. It's me, Lord. It's me. It's my fear. It's my prayer. It's my fear of man. It's my disbelief, God. The harvest is plentiful. Do you... Friends, do you know the story of Kentucky Fried Chicken? Maybe not, because I grew up with Kentucky Fried Chicken. That was only fried chicken, really, was Kentucky Fried Chicken. Now you got Popeyes, Jollibee's, you got like famous, you got Korean fried chicken, you got all sorts of fried chicken now, right? Back in the day, it was just Kentucky Fried Chicken. You know Colonel Sanders, Har- you know the guy's face on the bucket, Harlan Sanders? You know, when he was selling his, his recipe for fried chicken, he got rejected 1,009 times driving around America, 
all over the place, trying to get people to, to buy his fried chicken recipe. 1,009 times. One, number 1,010, somebody said yes, and then bam, it blew up. What makes a man be willing to be rejected 1,009 times? What, what kind of faith does a man have to say, I know, I know that people need these 11 herbs and spices, and if they just tried it, they would know that this changes their life. A man who, who believes so deeply that he's got the fried chicken recipe, that he doesn't give up. And on 1,010, somebody says yes, and then the world, KFC is one of the biggest things in the world right now, and he says, I told you so. And everybody's like, yeah, you were right. You were right. Why? Because he's got 11 herbs and spices. Friends, we have living water. We have spiritual food. And we go, do people really want this or need this? Brothers and sisters, this is what people need more than anything else in the world is living water, is spiritual food. They need it more than anything else in this world. And thank God for the Holy Spirit that it's not up to us to change people. It's just up to us to testify. The God of this age has blinded the eyes of non-believers. It may not be easy. They may reject you once, twice. They may reject you 50 times, like my mother did, like my, my father did to me until they came to know the Lord. They may do that over and over again but we are living in the age of the Spirit. And Jesus says the harvest is plentiful. Friends, the, the hard work, Jesus said, the hard work has already been done. Others have labored and you are reaping. Who are the others? People don't know. Some say Moses, the Old Testament. Some say the prophets. Some say John the Baptist. Some say Jesus talking to the Samaritan woman. Some say Jesus, his death, his, his work upon the cross. Probably all of the above all of the above. Friends, God has done the hard work. It is not up to us to come and to change somebody so that they put their faith in Jesus to convert them through our own power and our own ability. No, it is the wind of the Holy Spirit that blows wherever he wishes. It is a work of God. Your neighbor's salvation is not up to you. Your family member's salvation is not up to you. Your coworker's salvation is not up to you. You are you, me, you might sow, you might reap, you might do whatever. You just insert yourself into the story because God is already working. He is the one who does the hard work of opening up people's hearts to believe in the gospel. The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Can I encourage you with one other thing, brothers and sisters? And wow, we're going to end early. <laughs> the little kids are going to be like, you're here to pick me up already, mommy and dad? <laughs> I shouldn't say that. We might pray for half an hour. Who knows what the Holy Spirit <laughs> might do? So just calm down. <laughs> if I could just encourage you further. The Samaritan woman is so excited that she has found this living water that she leaves her physical water jar there she runs into the town to tell people about this living water that she has found. She's so excited. She does this. What does she do? What does she do? She goes up to people, to the townsfolks. She says, come, come, see this man who told me all that I ever did. Can he be the Christ? Think about how amazing that is. This woman who was coming to draw water at noon in the heat of the day in order to avoid people 
as much as she could to avoid them because of her shame, whether she was an adulteress or whether she had been kicked around the curb by men who abused her, whatever it was, she was the talk of the town. She didn't want to be around other people. She had all this shame. She separated herself, getting water in the heat of the day, carrying this huge jar of water at noon. She runs to the people. She runs to the people. And guess what she says? She didn't just say, come and see the Messiah. Come and see the one that Moses prophesied about. What did she say? Come and see a man who told me all that I ever did. What did the townsfolk say? We know all that you ever did. Why are you talking about that? We know your story. We know your history. Why would she bring up the thing that is so, such a source of brokenness and shame for her to the town, to the whole town? Why would she do that? Because Jesus came to her. The Messiah talked to her. The Messiah accepted her in spite of her shame, in spite of her brokenness. He came from Israel into Samaria to Jacob's well to meet this woman, to tell her, God loves you. Even with my past, even with my five husbands and now the guy I'm living with, God loves you. I came here to tell you that. And if God can speak to her in her shame and in her brokenness, she could shout it to others. She could shout to others because what was a source of shame for her became a triumph of grace, became a triumph of the grace of God in her life. Come, come, come meet a man who told me all that I ever did, all my shame, all my brokenness, all of everything that you laugh at me about. He knew it all, but he came. He told me about living water. He wasn't afraid to speak to me. He loved me. He took time to be with me, to give me this eternal life. Brothers and sisters, when we go and we declare to this world, Jesus, we don't go as perfect people. We don't go because we have it all together. We go as broken sinners. I say, I'm, I'm not perfect. I'm not. Yes, I know. When you look at me, yeah, you, you may see my flaws and I got tons of them, my mistakes, my brokenness, but my God knew that too. He knew that too. He knows that and he saved me. He saved me. God is love. He came to die upon a cross so that my sin, my shame could be forgiven and so that I could become a child of God. And I want you to know he can do that for you too. He loves you. He wants you to come. And the people came and they streamed to him. And and I, I love this. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Thank God. <laughs> Thank God it's not up to us to convert somebody, to make them believe that Jesus is truly the Son of God. We just testify. We do our part. We bring them to Jesus. We say, come and see for yourself. Read the Word of God for yourself. Pray to God. Ask Him to reveal Him to yourself. I can't do it. I have no power to do that. Come and see if this is the Messiah. People said, no, it's not just because of what you say. Oh, we've seen. We believe this is the Savior of the world. Brothers and sisters, you just play one part. You sow. Maybe you get the blessed joy of reaping. Maybe somebody sees your example, the way that you live. Maybe, maybe you give somebody a Bible. You read with them. Maybe you pray for them in their, in their pain. You show them the love of Jesus. Whatever it is, you play one part in that, one step in that. So the people could say, Oh, it's not just you. 
you got the ball rolling. And maybe many other people in my life. My mama who'd been talking to me about Jesus for a long time. The other people who've been laboring. But you played a role in that. And now I believe that Jesus is the Savior of the world. Friends, if you're not a Christian, maybe your friend dragged you here, don't just take your friend's word for it. See for yourself. Pick up the Bible. Read the Scriptures. See the claims of God. See what He says. If He is truly the Messiah. And I believe the Word of God, which is living and active, the Bible says, will speak to you. If you pray and you humble yourself, you say, God, are you out there? Reveal yourself to me. I really want to know you. If you reach for Him, I believe He hears those prayers. Come and see for yourself. I invite the worship team up this time. We stand together. I just want to read Isaiah 55 here, 1 and 2. It says, Isaiah says this, a lot of Isaiah today. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. No money, but you can buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and, you, and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. <laughs>